one of the reasons why we use that reflection is because of the uh, commonality of the human experience and that it's actually something that we need to come to terms with. In this culture, we don't like to do that. You know, I don't know that there is a culture that does, but in this culture, we're absolutely committed to not coming to terms with it. And, uh, you know, seeing as if, you know, any of these things is some kind of a fundamental thing that's gone wrong rather than a kind of an aspect of our life and our nature and what happens when we're born. The reasons for focusing on this, the reasons for looking at it, the reasons for becoming familiar with it is not to become morbid and to become morose and to feel depressed, but to realize that there is a, there is more than this in life that is possible when we actually come to terms with this and understand that this is a gateway. This is a gateway for access and understanding insight that allows us to have a kind of peace and a a kind of freedom which is not dependent on having health, having youth, having energy. And uh, and, and in in fact, the, the realization and the freedom that can come is in fact independent of even having the consciousness that awakens is not dependent on a body in that way and so there are glimpses that we get of something that is bigger than the kind of ordinariness of our life or the humdrum of life or of getting stuck in something and those glimpses can help us motivate us to stay focused on the way suffering is experienced in order that we can use it to stay attentive to the realization of the end of suffering. This is completely different than a kind of a schmear job where we're just pasting on top of everything a kind of aphorism or a, or an attitude. It's actually picking up the reality of our experience and staying with it until our um, there's like almost like an alchemy, a transformation that takes place where we are then perceiving life in a different way rather than just smearing on top of the same thing a positive attitude about it. And so the contemplation of old age, sickness and death is one of the things that is meant to be done regularly, repeatedly, every single day. And again, it's meant to be so that we focus our life on what our priorities are, so that we remember that this is part of what having a body is about, and so that we don't get caught out in the kind of normal, trivial stuff that normally knocks us sideways when we remember the bigger picture, which is is that, you know, basically at any minute we can go, you know. So, you know, what I was just sharing beforehand was the experiences in the last two weeks. I've heard of five people who've died, and they have been totally unexpected deaths. They were absolutely no warning or no preparation whatsoever, okay, both for the individual and for the people around them. And the last one that I heard about, which was yesterday, was somebody who was in his 30s. You know, So we don't think, you know, well, I'm in my 30s, you know, that this is something that's going to happen to me. But it can happen to anybody, and it can happen at any time, you know. And so the point of bringing this contemplation to mind is so that we really get it, that life, our life is uncertain. 
we don't know. We absolutely don't know how long we're going to live for. And the point of making that clear and refocusing on that again and again and again and again and again is a kind of reality check. You know, how am I paying attention? What am I doing with my life? Is this what I really want to be doing? You know, if I actually am not going to live tomorrow, am I spending today in the way that is of most value and meaning to me? Again, the purpose of this is not to become stuck in a kind of depressed state about, oh, I'm going to die and isn't that terrible and all the rest of that. But to focus our energies, our lives, our priorities, our commitments, our motivations in order that our opening, our heart opens into something that's quite a bit bigger. I want to share a story about um, Max. Because his story is something that I think, you know, resonates with us on many different levels. At least it does for me. And it ties in all of these things. Max was an absolute genius. I mean, I've known geniuses before, but I mean, he, this one was like, I haven't met geniuses like him very often. He was incredible. He was, um, some kind of an IT wizard with a vision and a kind of capacity that was unimaginable. And he designed a a boat and the software for it so that it was a computerized, solar-powered motorboat where the panels would rotate to where the sun was, okay? And um, he was the software engineer, and he was the um, boat designer, and he was the builder, overseer, and he was the installer, okay? I mean, just huge range, huge range of scale and capacity. And this boat, which they were building, was going to be part of the um, showpiece of the Olympics in Sydney. And so they wanted to use it to, to escort dignitaries around the Sydney harbor, and so the time before that was like intensely pressured because he was doing equivalent the amount of work for probably about 10 people and his days were ridiculous long and so he was working and there was a lot of prestige involved in this project as well as time pressure it had to be done by a certain time so he'd gotten to a certain level of completion and he felt comfortable with that and he was also a very devout meditation practitioner very devout. And um, one of the things that that can happen in a Mahayana meditation center or temple is, is that they will give you temporary ordination. Like we go on a 10-day retreat, they'll give you ordination as a monk or a nun for 10 days. Or you take the vows and you shave your head and you live the life for 10 days because their sense is, is the kind of the positive accumulation of merit for even that amount of time is so beneficial to your mind stream that it's worth it so he knew of this temple that was south of Sydney that was offering this 10 day monastic retreat and he was really delighted to be able to go on it and in a Mahayana temple one of the things that they emphasize is taking the Bodhisattva vows and the Bodhisattva vows is the vow to awaken for the benefit of all beings 
And in accordance with the understanding of the bodhisattva vows, once you've actually made the commitment to take the bodhisattva vows, it carries on until you have realized them. So that means that it's not just something that you take for this life. It actually continues into all of your future lives until you've actually manifested as the perfection of your vow. Okay? It's not a small thing. So Max went to this temple and he took monk's vows and he took the bodhisattva vows. And, you know, he said later that the bodhisattva vows was the single most important thing that he had ever done in his entire life. Okay? To be that clear and that focused that that's what he wanted to do. And so he was really delighted that, you know, it worked out that he could make it for this retreat and it worked out that he could be able to do this. And so he was really delighted. And the ten days were over and he handed back his robes and he handed back some of his precepts. When his wife Daphne came and picked him up, you know, obviously he didn't get his hair back and he didn't give back his bodhisattva vows. And they were heading out and on the way they needed to use a pit stop and he went to the toilet. There was blood everywhere. So they took him to the hospital and they did extensive tests and they found out, you know, he had advanced renal cancer and it was very aggressive and the doctors gave him three weeks to live, you know, like that. He had no clue. Absolutely no clue. So, you know, what do you do? You know, and I think actually it's a really powerful reflection. What do you do if you have three weeks? Now, my friend Nicholas didn't have three weeks. He died suddenly. He didn't have, he didn't have a day. Lynn didn't have a day. You know, he had a massive stroke and by the next day he was gone. You know, the incident of what happened in Boulder, you know, somebody came in the store and they were shot. You know, it was like no time. Absolutely no time. So, Max had three weeks. So he thought, all right, I've got three weeks. What do I want to do? You know, what's important in my life? How do I want to spend my last three weeks? And that's actually a really important reflection. If you have a very limited amount of time, what do you want to do with it? How do you want to spend it? What's important? What do you value? What don't you value? What takes up your time but is actually not essential? So he thought about it. You know, obviously he thought about it. You know, the doctor said, you know, you don't have, you, you know, this is, you know, time to wrap it up. And he thought about it. And what he came to when he considered this reflection is the single most important thing that he could do was to express adequately his love and appreciation to his family and to his friends. That was the most important thing. And then, and this is actually brilliant, he thought that the single most significant thing that would help him do that is if he loved himself fully and completely. And I don't know what it was about the ripening of his karmic stream or the intensity of that or, you know, what had led up to it or the fact that it was such a short period of time, relatively speaking. But it was as if the conditions supported everything falling away that kept him from loving himself. 
And so Max was absolutely luminous. I mean, he was not the slightest bit confused. He knew he was dying. But he was absolutely luminous. Because something in him had really gotten it. He was the love that he wanted to manifest for his family and his friends. And so, you know, he'd go into the scans or he'd have scans, he'd go back into the hospital, he'd go into the things and the doctor would say, you know, this is just ridiculous. If there was any other human being who came in here, I'd say, you know, you've got three days to live. But you, go home, come back in three months. You know, there was a kind of un unaccountability for the physiology of what was happening. The cancer spread throughout his body. It was in his heart. It was in his brain. It was in his spine. It was in all of his organs. And yet what you saw was somebody who was absolutely luminous. It was as if there was something else that was working, not the normal kind of physiology that was working. And what was really inspiring to me, having contact with him, was he said categorically, that this was the best part of his whole life because he got it and what he got was that which is actually beyond death because what he knew and what he understood and what he could talk about was is that he wasn't going anywhere And so there was a kind of grief of having to let go of his family. There was a grief of having to close the chapter and watch their process with his process. But he knew he wasn't going anywhere. You know, there was something that was unfolding. It was unfolding in accordance with nature. But who he really was, was not going anywhere. And so it's actually an incredibly powerful reflection for all of us, you know, about the way we live our lives, the choices that we make, the way we relate to death, the way we relate to people who are dying. And how, if we pick this up in the right way, it's a gateway to something which is indescribable you know you don't have language to describe that but everybody who had anything to do with Max could feel it the gas station attendants the orderlies in the hospital anybody could feel it there was this magnificent sense of peace and ease and loving quality that just radiated out to everyone So it's important to be clear about why we practice, you know. You know, on one hand, there's the sense of it just is lovely to be together with a group of people and be quiet. It's lovely to let the mind settle. It's lovely to kind of have a little bit more sense of confidence and centeredness. 
But that doesn't even touch or touch a fraction of it. None of those things are wrong. They're not bad motivations. But in terms of the possibility and the potential of what is actually here, that stuff doesn't touch a fraction of what the possibility of meditation can do in terms of connecting us with our potential for what our inherent nature is. And when we live in accordance with that, what the results are. So, you know, this week has been a rich week for me in terms of contemplations with that. You know, it started with birth and the incredible privilege of being present at the birth of these two fawns. You know, seeing them be born and watching them take their first steps. You know, and seeing them wobble and fall and and the kind of sense of awe at being able to witness life emerging in its fragility, in its exquisite vulnerability, and yet in its intelligence. And then the kind of quivering of, of wanting to take care and protect, you know, wanting to make sure it's okay. And then the realization that I can't do that. It's not within my power to do that. And the kind of anguish and the despair in coming to terms with that, you know. Nicholas, who I heard about dying yesterday, you know, was somebody that I had a fair amount of contact with. As a layman, he came on my retreats, and as an anagarica, he attended my retreats. And as a seminera, we used to spend quite a lot of time talking together. So I had a sense of his own commitment to practice and his own aspiration and his own struggles, you know. And here was a human being who, you know, was clear. You know, his focus was on waking up. And for a number of years, his commitment to doing that was in the context of living in a monastery and living within a monastic form. And then since I've left the monastery, there are many people that I haven't been kept up to date with in terms of, you know, what happened to them and where their choices led them and all the rest of that and where they were. But I contacted his sister, and the family is in absolute shock, which you would imagine they would be. They had absolutely no clue.
So the reason why, you know, these very fundamental, simple reflections are offered is in order that we can come to terms with the reality of what it is to human being. And not only come to terms with it in terms of the fact that we're living in a kind of balanced and functional way in relationship with the reality of life, but so that it can begin to focus our attention and our motivation so that our orientation is towards something which is hugely um, bigger. It's inclusive and hugely bigger than the details of what we experience in our day-to-day living. It doesn't mean that we need to give up our relationships. It doesn't mean that we need to change our lifestyle in terms of becoming renunciant. But what does need to happen is, is that we need to become clear about what our priorities are and live in congruence with them. The oil spill in the Gulf uh, naturally is um, very disturbing. And it is so enormous and of such a catastrophic kind of magnitude. It's, it, it's actually hard to stay present with the reality of what is happening there. Uh, and, and the result of that is, is that for many people, what their responses is just to shut down. You know, they can't actually enter into the territory. They can't go there. And yet, what I think each of us can do in our own way is open up the field of appreciation and gratitude. Open up the, the well-wishing, the sense of, of our own ability to connect with the individual creatures that we know who are suffering, the, the whales and the dolphins and the shrimp and the pelicans and the fish, the human beings that are living on the coast, the people who have a livelihood of, that are connected with the sea, you know, the people who are getting sick, you know, all the people who are involved in this whole big huge thing. And in our own hearts, through our own expression of appreciation and well-wishing, wishing well and asking for forgiveness. You know, I didn't have anything to do with that, but I can still be incredibly sorry that this is happening. Asking for forgiveness and expressing a sense of this benevolence, this sense of kindness, this sense of loving quality that is not limited to the own, my own personal sphere of the people that I know and relate to and, and the animals that come into my little space, but something that actually can radiate much bigger than that. And so when we touch in from that perspective, our appreciation, our regret, are asking for forgiveness and the quality of loving. 
we have something very tangible that we can connect to, which is a powerful force of goodness and wholesomeness. And even though we can't necessarily follow the linking of what that does and what the results are, I can assure you, first of all, it does no harm. And second of all, sometimes these things bring about uh, um, the causes and conditions for miraculous things to unfold. So there's something that each of us can do every day that is supportive of a situation which is out of control and catastrophic, tragic. So I think I'll stop there and uh, offer this for the reflection this evening. And I just would like to express or share the, the merits of this reflection with the people that I have heard about in these last two weeks that have died. Nicholas, Dana's friend Roberto, Lynn Howard, and these two in Boulder. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.